Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Martin Lee, and this is the Autosport Podcast. Welcome to the Autosport 2022 Formula One Review Podcasts. The first of two shows that we'll do, uh, such is the weight of content we have to get through today. And the second time I recorded this intro, because I messed it up the first time by not turning on one of our guests' microphones. So I should be better, in theory, at this intro. I did write a running order for this program, which was genuinely terrible. So my first guest kindly fixed it and put together the running order today. And that would be Autosport's F1 reporter, Luke Smith. The second I'm a- I've asked you this, so I know the answer. <laughs> Hello, how are you? I give you a completely different answer, can't <laughs> I, want, just to mess uh, around. How, you, how are you feeling after Formula One uh, has wrapped up uh, at the usual time of year, not uh, the week on, before Christmas? Honestly, though, it's not slowed down. Like We've been so busy with season reviews and... Uh, Obviously, fun events like the Autosport Awards, the FIA Gala next week as well. Like it's it's busy and it's good busy, but the intensity hasn't really stopped, even though the season has finished. But it, no, it's been a great year for F1. There is this is a really good chance to sort of look back on the season that's been and the the highs and lows. Like we had the Autosport Awards last night as well, which may explain why we sound a bit a uh, bit husky, maybe. No, uh, but I think uh, okay. a very fun event, a very good way to sort of get the motorsport community together at the end of the season and uh, yeah, raise a glass to the great and the good of a really great year of racing. So, so, some of us sound worse than others. Okay, no, <laughs> surprisingly. My second guest and former Autosport podcast host, uh, Alex Kalanokis, our Grand Prix editor. I had um, wanted to do this at midday and you went, mm, maybe one o'clock just in case. But you all seem okay today. You all seem fine. You were planning on a big night last night at the Autosport Awards. What was your highlight of the awards, by the way? Uh, my highlight, what my highlight of the awards. Uh, I had a nice chat with George Russell after he'd won his award. And you then and he, George go back, and he we did go back, go back a few years covering him GP3, and then he dropped his award on the table. There was an enormous crash. Oh, that's, that was George. That's what it was. Oh, wow. yeah, yeah, I, I think that they were really heavy. You carried one, Luke, when you gave it to Vettel. It was um, they're they're weighty, weighty things. I don't think the table could quite could quite take it. Oh, mega! And uh, and my final guest today, last but not least long-time auto sporter but finishing up his first full-time year in uh, Formula One uh, Formula One <laughs> and I didn't go last night uh, is Matt Q uh, welcome down south it's warmer down here isn't it because normally you're in the the frozen north it is it's uh, adding to adding to Luke talking about how busy it is I've got a house move so I've got I've got five days left in the in the northeast so uh yeah, uh, we're, bringing, we're dragging you back down to the southeast, right? Uh, Midlands, Midlands. I'm oh. uh, adding that to season reviews and trying not to pack away notebooks into boxes in case I need to 
rewrite about Matir Bonotto. It's uh, it's all it's all good fun. Apologies for not knowing enough about your future domestic arrangements. I'll make a note to be better next time. But good luck with the move. Thank you. Uh, um, let's get into the the show today. And uh, how should we attack a, a review of 2022? And it has to start with the dominance of Max Verstappen and Red Bull Racing, which at the beginning of the year, when you were at testing, this wasn't a slam dunk Red Bull Red Bull year. Uh, it was one of those stories that developed um, through the year. But uh, now that we look back on, with that hindsight, with a bit of time as well, how are you thinking about Max and Red Bull's year? Genuinely, one of the best seasons, I think, in Formula One in terms of single driver and team performance and the way that they work together. I think that Red Bull this year were on another level. I think that as the season went on, they just got better and better. I think around the sort of summer break and from then onwards, they took this massive step forward. You look at Spa and just the way that Verstappen dominated that weekend from 14th on the grid and was leading after, what, 11, 12 laps, something like that. Uh, I think, yeah, he could have started that race last and would probably have still won it. That's just how good the Rebel was around Spa. But all the way through the back end of the season, they won 10 of the final 11 races and they really did kick on. But I think that, as you said, Martin, like in testing, it didn't look like that was going to be how the season was. We thought it was going to be this Red Bull versus Ferrari fight, Leclerc versus Verstappen. And that was really exciting. We got, got a good taste of that in Bahrain with their wheel-to-wheel battle and then obviously Rebel had those reliability issues in the uh, two of the opening three races and already by then we were like oh, are Ferrari going to throw everything behind the clerk and like can Verstappen actually get back into this title race and then it quickly changes and you just saw this Red Bull juggernaut get better and better through the season. Adrian Newey he was on stage last night accepting the award for racing car of the year for the RB18 and he said that they wanted to make the car as well rounded as possible and they did that like the back end of the season they were just on another level so I think that it was impressive not only how dominant they were, but also from the position they came. It wasn't like a, a Mercedes in X many years over the past sort of eight years or so, or a, like Braun in 09 when out of the blocks, he was like, yep, comfortably the quickest car. It was only really what Spa onwards. I think you could probably say that Red Bull had the quickest overall package and were that step clear. And yeah, I think that's down to what the team did, but also Verstappen, who uh, yeah, just got better and better this year. Because I'm here every Sunday night asking you guys the questions on the on the review podcast, that Sunday night is a snapshot in time. In my head, I keep thinking this year has been more competitive than it actually than it really has. And of course, you have to do those driver ratings on a Sunday night. But then you get to the end of the year and you do your top ten drivers, and that might differ than if you simply just added up all the Sundays or the you know the Monday reports because of that hindsight. But how 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 are you looking back at Alex uh, Alex at uh, Max and Red Bull's season? Well, it's interesting going back through the drive ratings for things like the top 10 that Matt and I are putting together, uh, top 10 drivers, because you, you, you live these races and that's your whole world for those few sort of days and few hours when you're putting that piece together and you know absolutely everything about it. And then you read them back and you can, pr- you can really follow the themes of all the drivers and how it went and you sort of little tiny little details you might have forgotten. It's really handy to have that to look back on. And um, actually, I just want to go back even further to when we were talking about testing. And like, again, it's like something that happened so many months ago and so many things ago right because all the you know all the traveling we do all the events that happen all the many many formula one races that go on this year right um that first test and remember, remember they weren't even calling it a test f1 was like oh it's down, like a, yeah. yeah shake to absolute nonsense definitely a test when red bull didn't even reveal their car do you remember the season launch that it was, was like here's our car and it's clearly not your car it's the yeah. f1 show car that you just painted as a red bull um that was in 2022 that was just after the last autosport awards wasn't it that was delayed by uh, by the by the by the uh, omicron variant um yeah but just thinking back to that first test right um red bull looked very very strong there but mercedes topped it and McLaren looked really good. Do you remember when we, Matt, you and I stood watching them, uh, watching the cars outside, out on track, right? Norris hated that, didn't he? He was a really reluctant pace setter. He was like, oh, this is a false dawn. Everyone's going to get really excited about it and then we're not going to be very good. Which is exactly, That's exactly what happened. happened. <laughs> um, and then obviously the new Mercedes came out in Bahrain with the no side pods and it was, all that was when all the porpoising was suddenly being revealed and how bad it was. But Red Bull just looked good from the off. We were like, right, doesn't look like they've had a terrible start with this new ground effects era all of that uh, speaking to Ross Braun in Abu Dhabi that was our magazine cover feature um, uh, last week when we're recording this whenever this podcast goes out it might be a few weeks down the line uh, but he was basically saying look it's no surprise that the Red Bull didn't have major problems with porpoising because of Adrian Newey he was around he's seen it he's seen it all before he wasn't he wasn't seduced by going down the path of trying to get the, the sort of peak downforce gains you can get from running the car as low to the ground as possible keeping it as stiff as possible things like that things that Ferrari, Mercedes you know other teams did um, 
so Red Bulls just looked solid and then got better. We know the problem at the start was that the car was too heavy. And Verstappen hated that because caused caused understeer. He still won four of the first six races. Like he just came out of the came out of the blocks absolutely flying and just got better from there. I think that you know there were still minor off moments, but they weren't as big as Leclerc's, and that is ultimately the the, the story of Verstappen's season. Mm. What are your thoughts on how that season progressed? To go back a bit uh, over the car some more, you know, we were lucky enough to have Adrian New at the Auto Sport Awards last night, and. Um, I remember after the car came out strong, there was like a clamour to reread his autobiography because he talked about studying ground effects. I think it was at university, and um, I was actually asking him about that last night, which is his first massive clang uh, from a pod. Oh, you, you did Ross Braun, so I can, I can, I can do Adrian. And I, did, I mentioned uh, George Russell earlier. Oh <laughs> God, yeah. that's a competition of all the name dropping. <laughs> but I asked, I asked Adrian, you, you know. Was it some satisfaction that this is this is a skill? I think I was very kind. I think this is a skill you learned thirty years ago, probably a bit more in Adrian Newey's case. But he was saying that we went, you know, really too hard on last year's car developing it right up until the end. So what we what we unveiled in Barcelona was a car that had the fundamentals, is what he called it. But it was it was simple fundamentals, and that's why he said he takes you know if anything, more satisfaction from the development curve that went on because they came out with a good baseline. Like Alex said, it was it was overweight. I mean, I remember when the covers first came off, it had those really aggressive side pods and we thought, oh, this is, this is pretty nutty. But, you know, even then it went up and up and up and up and um, the weight was a major Achilles heel. It's, you know, I'm trying to just keep it on Red Bull, but to introduce elements of, of Ferrari. Now the former team boss, Mattia Bonotto, is talking about, you know, why it's so impressive is because Red Bull left. They had that one obvious area, the low hanging fruit, which is which was the, uh, the the getting rid of the weight. Whereas Ferrari, they said, you know, we're actually really happy with our weight and and actually our aero. So you know, we don't have this one real clear area of development. But but Red Bull just brought it on, and the car got better and better in speed in a straight line. Mega with that Honda engine, the way it can nurse its tires, that the the on the light fuel runs. Like I know it's so subjective, but when you're watching trackside, to see aggression, which Max was flinging it through corners, like it was, what a car! Is that a car designed for Max Verstappen, or was it designing a car for the new Aero regs? It came towards him, so he didn't like it at first with the understeer because Max is a bit like Hamilton and Leclerc. Hamilton and Verstappen are sort of a step above this. They can just handle the loose rear end, and that's what they're amazing at. And that's what the other drivers that are you know sort of teammates with them. Carlos Sainz got there in the Ferrari, but like Perez can't do it. And once that understeer was dialed out by the weight coming off, that's when it was. It was just Max's car. Like it may have been engineered like for him, mm. but I think just that's just the natural progression, the way of doing it by making it lighter play to his strengths I think the comparison you draw there is McLaren where I, I put a similar question to, to Norris saying right you've got the long term deal you've been here four years you're clearly the number one driver you know let's make the car around you surely that's what makes most sense but he's like well we've just lost fourth in the championship because my teammate can't score any points so you absolutely have to go for middle ground and a slight add-on he said to that is if it has been designed for me they've done a terrible job because I don't <laughs> like driving it <laughs> and and then in terms of We'll talk about the the cost cap stuff later. We'll start to talk about politics and that. That development through the year was a different beast this year because you there is reduced testing, but within a cost cap, you have to spend every pound wisely. And, and that car seemed to come on more than others. Yeah, definitely. And I think that the fact that the weight was such an easy, an easy win, basically, not saying it was an easy job to do, but I think that's a place where you can make a lot of gains as opposed to others. Yeah, Ferrari, as you say, they couldn't make that same kind of time gain. And um, spoke to um, Alfa Romeo and sort of how their season went. And obviously they were so good out of the blocks, but that's because they, they smashed it with the weight. Like they, were, they were really close to the weight limit. And that meant that come mid-season, it wasn't a fact that they didn't develop or anything like that. They developed, but the rivals maybe went at a similar development play, pace, but it was that plus the weight that was coming off. So really it's like an easier thing you can tap into. So I think it's a bit of that from Red Bull. But yeah, I think as the season went on, they just it just got better and better and I think that you didn't see yeah Ferrari make the same kind of gains that the Rebel did at all mm. and yeah I mean that, again it's just testament to what they did particularly after last year as well I know yeah we'll get on to cost cap and all of that scandal but the fact the Rebel developed so late into last year to win that title fight for Max Verstappen and still developed a car that was out of the blocks joint fastest with Ferrari say and then made it better and better to finish the season well clear that really says a lot about what they did this year. Didn't always get it right, though. Do you remember the DRS like malfunctioning and not working uh, yeah. in Spain? And Christian Horner was like, that's because we got too extreme in where we were trying to save weight. We need to maybe focus it 
elsewhere to get the weight off because it kept not working and Max was was losing his uh, losing his cool let's put it diplomatically flap, on the radio oh, very oh. good oh, very good <laughs> I think or very bad one of them I don't know there's a few numbers you know bandied around but I think when we talk about the weight uh, the, the figure that I've heard most of all was up to 20 kilos over that 798 kilograms and obviously uh, minimum weight limit and obviously it's not just about getting to the minimum weight limit it's about getting under it Pierre Vache the technical director at Red Bull was saying that it's, it's then about you know if you're under it it's like British touring cars effectively you have ballast you have to be at that weight limit but then the trick is you can choose where to perform it so in a, in, in the case of why it helped Verstappen so much is they stuck all the weight over the nose to push those Pirellis into the front and he's happy to hang on to the rear and, and, and that's why it came to him so so well the the slight thing I'm sorry Martin I'm jumping around all over the place but I think a really interesting plot line will be how much more weight can come out of that RBA team because we know that you know, Red Bull have got to take in a 25% aero cut for next year for winning the championship and uh, for the cost cap breach. So that comes up there, uh, aerodynamic testing allocation. So therefore, if you can keep within the cost cap, you throw all the money at taking weight out of the car because you've lost your aerodynamic. But if they've already sort of done that with the weight, sort of are they are they chasing diminishing returns? I think that's something to look forward to for next year when we're sat here in a year's time, guys. What about the Max Verstappen winning machine, as it were? As in the the structure he's got around him? You'd probably argue, I'm guessing his dad, one of the more powerful family members in the paddock, certainly outspoken, which came to light at the end of the year with claims around teammate Sergio Perez in, in Monaco and it, so he's not afraid to get involved in the cut and thrust of Formula 1 of course you know, he knows how it works but just in terms of Max's engineer race engineer and the fact that you've got Christian Horner leading an established team there proving they didn't forget how to win a championship right so is he now just untouchable next year he does seem to still be on an upward trajectory he does seem to still be getting better it's like you know every sports person has their peak at some point it just comes earlier and lower for others and for someone like Max Verstappen who we know is a superstar he does seem to just be on that rise I would say Um, and I think you know, one of the areas is actually something that Horner highlighted that sort of hasn't... Max has had this for a while, but it's not been talked about as much, is that he's very, very good when it comes to time management. So not only is he incredibly fast, he's incredibly tenacious. Like, he's got, like, Hamilton-level speed, Alonso-level not getting over things, you know, not giving up, like, you know, constantly grabbing onto something to fire him up. He's got the skill that Hamilton has, which is that he's just a tyre whisperer. Now, everybody would, was saying previously that was Perez's skill. And actually, it's, it's almost like Perez is very good on stuff like that. But the circumstances meant that he was like when he was at Force India, you know, you know, often back in the pack. He was he needed to do that because he was put on like a different strategy and it paid off very well. You know, he won that race in Bahrain so famously. Now, Verstappen is quite rightly getting praised because he he just has that innate ability to be extremely fast, not kill his tyres. And we saw it in Mexico, all those laps in the same bracket, like dum, 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 going in like total consistency. So I think he he does have it all, Verstappen. And he's also really starting to wield his power. Now I put him to that, put that to him in Abu Dhabi. We, we sat down for uh, an interview there. And, you know, he sort of, you know, he does, he plays the media game. He, he, he doesn't, you know, rise to things. He doesn't, you know, give a lot away. But he clearly is wielding his power as a world champion. You know, he boycotted Sky Sports in Mexico and things like that. So we are in a Verstappen era, whether if Mercedes gets back to being at full strength and Lewis Hamilton, we know, is extremely fired up after losing that title in 2021, whether he... He's always going to keep winning. We don't know. But we, I think we are living in the era of Verstappen. I think that's fairly undeniable. Not many drivers would back out of Drive to Survive and tell Netflix, no, I'm not exactly. interested. Exactly. I'm not, I'm not doing that. Yeah. He's not on social media every five minutes. He keeps his private life pretty private. I was talking to our Dutch colleagues from motorsport.com. We have a, a, an outlet there. And I was saying, oh, you know, what's, what's it like? What's he like as a personality? Will you have... Uh, I was thinking of when a football team wins a championship, the kind of open top bus parade equivalent, you know, where they hold the trophy at the front of a bus or will there be a thing on stage? And they were saying, well, no, not rest, not really Max's style, right? He doesn't really do that. He he seems to be, his public persona when he's driving and on the radio, he's full of adrenaline, right? And him and his engineer can have that cut and thrust, which I think people interpret as as him being kind of on the ragged edge 
or or out of control in some way because he's shouting and also English not his first language although he speaks excellent English obviously but he just seems to be I don't know like like quietly in control is that, is that my, my kind of making sense of Formula One like he's got his grip on it Absolutely, I think he's he's getting more mature both as a driver and as a person. Like he's he said himself, you know, yeah, I've I've really had an amazing season, but I've not stepped up like several rungs from last year. But I've you know, he's now had uh, what six six complete seasons in F one. You're still going to get those incremental gains. So there's not been a step change. He's now got the machinery, and I think he is you know a more mature driver. We can talk about you know how. Regardless of what gets said, he battles Leclerc differently. Or certainly, if he's will by uh, side by side with Leclerc, we get a great battle. If he's side by side with Hamilton, we get a crash. There, there is obviously a difference in how they treat one another. I still think there's some to come. So Abu Dhabi is a case in point where you know he's going. The media gives me such unfair treatment. You know they don't know the full story, and we go, Max, what's the full story? He goes, Ah, I'm not telling you. You know, so there is there is still flaws. There's still chinks in the armor, but but you know. In the car and how he conducts himself, he is, he's is, is he is he a more mature racer? Do you, I I think what we saw in Brazil revealed that he's exactly the same, like as, as in like wheel to wheel racer. I think there was a little flash of it at Silverstone when Mick Schumacher and he they yeah, were fighting was over bad. what was it sixth or seventh, yeah. right at the very end of the race. Which is Max saying, car. "I'm here, so you sort yourself out." Like, yeah, it was yeah, just a bit. You can work yourself out. It was just a bit weird because, like, obviously his car was damaged, and you know it was it was one or two points like and he was well ahead of Leclerc by this point why did he need to do it there was that little flash there and then when he crashed with Hamilton in Brazil he just he's, he's exactly the same as he was in 2021 so would you say I don't know is is he is that just who he is it's not that he needs to mature in his well, I'd say racecraft it's just that's who he is I would say I'd say out of all the Hamilton Verstappen shunts the Brazil was the most like um Borderline's the wrong word, but you know, I've, I've felt I think there was a, a strong case for Verstappen being hard done by by that penalty. Whereas the others, I'd say, like slam dunk, you know, you were banged to rights for for that. But I suppose the maturity thing is undermined by what happened later in that race, where he doesn't give back seventh place. So, so I'm I'm not saying he's 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 perfect, but I think like the arguments with his race engineer, yes, they're they're in the heat at the moment, but the minute they're out of the car, they're fine. And I think I think that's you know whether it's a relationship or whatever in whatever context I think that shows a degree of sort of maturity is is to have that and then get out and you're not you're not you know I'm not avoiding them now because we've we've raised voices that the fact they're perfectly in sync but you raise a good point about Brazil and the team orders uh it's spat saga however however you want to phrase it right is I think you've got to look at it in a certain way is has didn't what happened there did Verstappen reveal a sort of character weakness by not keeping Perez happy like for to, to be you know we, we we understand that it goes back to Perez crashing in Monaco right and Verstappen's being absolutely furious about that he's potentially risking that Perez won't say say Abu Dhabi 2021 is repeated just just say it is like in exactly the same circumstances he's risking Perez going do you know what I'm not going to give 100% I'm only going to give 95% and that might make the difference there so Luke what do you think maybe that's something that Verstappen may live to regret or is it again is it just a case that this is who he is. He's just uncompromising in every situation. I think uncompromising, definitely. But yeah, if a situation like that comes up again, Perez said on the radio, he said, oh, it shows who he really is. And obviously Perez then said that he regretted saying that and he at the moment, whatever. But it's, um, yeah, that dynamic next season is going to be so interesting. I think that Perez, okay, he's got this two-year contract now. It's not like Red Bull can say, oh, like you're on this sort of one-year rolling thing or anything like that. And I think that's, that's going to be a, really fascinating I think story going forward but I think for Max I think he yeah he's uncompromising it's it's his team like he leads that team obviously to so much success he's taken so many steps forward this year but I think Brazil did kind of show that he's not a completely different racer to who he was in 21. Why would you put anyone else in that second seat? Isn't Perez the perfect second driver though because he knows he's in the, the winning car and on an amazing paycheck he won't get it anywhere else why would he do? Why would he do anything else apart from Taylor? Well, that's <laughs> well, that, that's the two thing. That's the two things I'd say is first of all, if there is tangible evidence that he has disobeyed team orders or backed off when it is critical, repeated fight, he gets flicked because you know there's there's very that's his only realistic berth ever winning F1 races, let alone a championship in in Formula One is by sticking at Red Bull. So he will lose that if, if he doesn't want it. Um, but in terms of like. You know, to add to that, can can Red Bull do better? Well, yeah, because if you have Leclerc as Ferrari's number one driver, the sort of the the office debate, if you like, we have it is that Sainz is like a one point two five or a one point five driver, whereas Perez is, is 
is a number two driver. The fact that, you know, both in equal machinery, there can be three cars splitting them when they've run identical strategies. Or we've seen eight tenths over a qualifying lap when all, all, all's fair and equal. That That's a chasm in F1 by any standard. Which would destroy some drivers, but Perez knows his place. So he's like, okay, well, you know, I'm not, he won't be happy with it. But he's not going to be looking for another drive. He's the perfect teammate for Verstappen. He is not the perfect driver in that car for Red Bull because of those massive qualifying gaps. We do those lovely graphics that our social team put together, visualising the gaps uh, at the end of every you know Q3, the qualifying laps, like where the cars would cross the finish line, right? More often than not, there's, say, Leclerc's put it on pole, Verstappen is right, right with him, Science will be there, maybe Hamilton and Russell get in there, whatever. There's a big gap back to Perez. And that potentially, if... You know, Ferrari doesn't fall away if the Rebel package isn't as dominant. If Mercedes are back to 2021 and, and all the years before strength, that could cost Red Bull a constructors' championship. So they do have a problem to solve there. Showing my inability to predict Formula One's chaos with all of the Binotto stuff, I genuinely thought they'd shop around the paddock and probably internally at Ferrari. Nobody would want it because who wants that job? Because it's now clearly you have to win or you're out of a job at Ferrari. Uh, but they went and did it. I'd do it, by the way. I'd do the job. Well, you give it a year. No, no I reckon, I'd, get, I'd, get, I'd get a day or something like I'd that. I'd do it they for less than you. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then they went and let him resign with his head held uh, high. Let, let, yeah, yeah, okay. okay. Yeah. Uh, so he resigned, let me say that, um, and which gives him the ability to show up in other places. But they went and did it. At the end of that season, Ferrari said, right, a change of management, and uh, and it, it's it's all change. Holy moly, that was a, a a big piece of news, Luke. How does it, you know, why 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 do you think it happened, and uh, and what does it mean for 2023? Well, it does seem to come back to the management at Ferrari. You've got to see John Elkan and the new CEO, Benedetto Vigna, who joined in 2021. And it seemed when they sort of came in and took over more, more of the day-to-day running after Sergio Marchionne's um, passing a few years ago, I think that kind of weakened Bonotto's hand a little bit. I think him and Marchionne were very, very close. And I think that that has... I think that that's ultimately played against him. And I think they've kind of come in and said, right, this year we had a car that maybe could have won a championship. That to begin with, we were right there with Red Bull. A lot of chances fell away due to reliability or mistakes by the clerk and stuff like that. And I think that they saw this year as the big opportunity to say, right, Ferrari are back. We've, we've made that step forward. And at the end of the season, Ferrari said that, no, it's been a very good year. Like we've hit our target. And Jock Clear, we spoke to him in um, Abu Dhabi. And he said, if you could have offered us this season at the start of the year we'd have ripped your arm off for it and I'm thinking okay yeah it's a step forward but you've still not won the championship like you could have done so much more and so much better with this year so that was quite surprising and I think it does show that yeah but not so going I don't I don't understand what that's going to fix for Ferrari because they've got the problem of there's no team principal but Bonosso is also their technical chief because he stepped up from that role and he was never replaced so he kind of did this dual role so now Ferrari have got to fill probably their two most important F1 roles aside from the drivers in one go and uh, yeah I mean I don't know where they're going to go for it obviously Fred Vasseur if he comes in he's very close with Toto Wolff so that'd be an interesting dynamic but I think for Ferrari looking at this season, yeah, they've had, okay, success. They've won four races, but they've only won four races. Like they should have done so much better with the potential they had in testing and what they showed. And this is a really big missed opportunity for them this season. What about the difference between qualifying and race wins? That seems for Ferrari, for me, that seems the biggest problem that they could qualify, but they didn't convert this year. So, yeah, that's uh, obviously the stats of the season show that. Leclerc led the way, didn't he, with what was it, nine, ten proposition? Nine, nine propositions, yeah. The greatest that I love from this season is that um, Max Verstappen won more races from Charles Leclerc pole positions than Charles Leclerc won races from Charles Leclerc pole positions. That's a good stat. That's a good one. Yes, I'm very glad it was an amusing interruption there. You you justified cutting me off, no, I'm joking. Um, So that says a lot about just how fast Leclerc is we know this like he's always been extremely fast throughout his uh, his junior career um, but also it it reflected the fact that Verstappen wasn't happy with uh, the you know the understeering heavy car it revealed itself most when there was no fuel in the tank in, in qualifying he just couldn't push on um, right as he wanted to don't forget also the tyres they're changing the tyres for next year I know it's a, a not exactly the most sexy topic in Formula 1 but it did make a big difference we know those, uh, those new Pirellis for 2022 uh, were sort of you know, had had that had more understeering tendencies than than the drivers wanted. So that'll be gone for next year. So that maybe will help Verstappen even more when it comes to qualifying. But yeah, 
essentially Ferrari had the weaker race package because they weren't as good, again, st- sticking on that non-sexy subject of the tyres. Um, Ferrari itself says, I think Jocler said it in that interview at the end of the year, that it didn't get worse at tyre management. Red Bull just got faster. So their drivers were having to push harder to keep up with them. And I can, I, I, that's, that's very plausible. Totally get that as an explanation. But Ferrari still hasn't solved its historical problem on that. Like, all the teams occasionally get it wrong on the tyres. We saw Red Bull do that in Brazil. It was key to their um, losing that weekend when they could have had a perfect end to the season. Um, they did it occasionally in 2020 and 2021, things like that. Even Mercedes, like sometimes they're just, just, just not at the races just because you've got your sums wrong in practice, you made the wrong setup adjustments or whatever. But Ferrari just really go like quite quite you know dramatic swings in their performance on this like Austria which you know we were just saying they won four races this season Leclerc won three that was his most recent win back in what July five months ago ages ago like and like you know the the early victories that he had so long ago when we went to Australia that was this year it feels like another lifetime ago and that was a time when they looked absolutely dominant but yeah they were brilliant on on the tyres in Austria but they just couldn't couldn't get it sort of it couldn't bottle that and, and recapture it. They seemed to feel like they were making progress in Abu Dhabi. Leclerc, a brilliant one-stop performance there. So they can do it. They just need to get that, just be able to do it more often. Where did Bonotto get it wrong this year in terms of strategy? Because I think the only problem is because they made strategy gaffes this year and he said he defended it, his team in public right I think the only problem is if they then go back in that debrief and they're all doing high fives genuinely thinking they did nothing wrong I contend he was protecting his team but I don't know what happens inside Ferrari so in his defense wasn't he just protecting or what he's going to throw his chief strategist under a bus and get a new one halfway through the season what could he have done differently to still be in charge of Ferrari I think there's basically something has been lost in translation. So Mercedes has a no-blame culture. They're very proud of this and extends Formula 1 team, Formula E team, whatever. And and we know that, particularly after the toxic culture, you know, of Maurizio Arriva Benny, we know that's something Bonotto has worked super, super hard on. But a no-blame culture means we make mistakes and we come up with fixes, but we don't particularly put it on you, Martin, or... or Alex or Luke but the Ferrari thing seemed to be no no one is at fault ever we do not accept any blame so Silverstone was a was a good one so um uh, they split strategies uh, for late safety car they let Carlos Sainz pit and left Leclerc out obviously Leclerc by then you know in the championship mix they should have they should have backed him and and they backed Sainz and so the the fans uh, the, the the question that was put to Bonotto was like fans are saying you got this wrong what do you think and and Bonotto turns around and goes the fans are wrong what do they know and I don't think that's him being rude I think that's just the the difference between a no blame culture and not accepting any blame was was uh, was a bit lost there um you know because I think that was right on on the cusp of the summer break as well and he was talking about oh we don't need to make any changes whatsoever and it's like that doesn't mean you have to make hiring and firings but but outwardly it was very much a well we don't even need to do a sort of internal assessment and review and see if we can make tweaks it's fine and we'll sort of like a footballer we'll play ourselves back into form eventually and I think I think that's where it gets uh went you know went wrong aside from the points Luke was raising about you know basically Bonotto wasn't wasn't the boss's man or the, te- the you know their their first pick if you compound it with sort of the reliability with with that culture that that Ferrari culture he he was a dead man walking but it's it's all all daft like I don't I don't want to monologue about it too much but like in terms of communication just before Bonotto was sacked or no sorry just before <laughs> easy mistake to make just before Bonotto walked we we're told he wasn't going anywhere and then obviously he goes so what do you take from that communication and then what do you read into in this in the his exit statement it says you know we will begin the process or finalize the process of our new team principal in the year well as i wrote for gp racing if that was a football club saying you know we will now start a search for a new manager after after you know forcing the one we've got out the door that's when gary neville and jamie carragher saying this is a rudderless club that has no idea because they're making decisions with no with no sort of next step in in the pipeline the next person can't affect any change on 2023 at least in the first half of the season budget cap era arguably the whole of the whole of the season so I just don't understand what getting rid of him, apart from politically. But then again, he was a Ferrari lifer, like yeah. like Domenicali. Yes, yeah. He was an engineer. Like he he came from the engine department, whereas Domenicali was kind of more logistics. And but still, both of them. Whereas 
it seems in old days, but it seems that he, before you know, Jean Tot, had good runs before they started winning. And was he given enough time to prove that he could win? Or is it now at Ferrari, if you don't win in your first season, that's it, you're gone? He wasn't given enough time. No, I, I don't, don't think, think so. so. I think that, okay, it was, he bought 2019, he took over, then they had the 2020 engine settlement, obviously sort of pinned them back so far. 21 was uh, difficult, but they made that step forward. And I think that, yeah, you look at this year, yes, they missed opportunities, but I think you had to stick with him. You had to say, well, we're too invested now. And yeah, as you say, changing now wasn't going to make any difference for next year and changing when you've not got a proper succession plan in place. I think, again, it's like, well, what were you going to do? And I think that when Arriva Bene, when it was very clear that Bonotto would step into that role and you don't you don't have that from Ferrari. So, yeah, I think the next year, whoever comes in, they face such a big task to get that team together and get it united properly because Bonotto, yeah, he was, he was very well liked within the Ferrari team. That is something that, they're going to struggle, I think, for next year to quickly get back into place. And so. the politics of Ferrari, right. So if they come, if they go outside the company, you've got someone who's going to learn the politics, even if, as you say, the CEO picks his man, but still there's politics in, in Ferrari, which Bonotto understood because he'd, he'd been through it. And I think it's worth worth mentioning that Formula One teams are like paddle steamers. They take a long time to sort of change direction. So if Ferrari have an amazing 2023, this isn't, you know, someone else can't come in and go, mission accomplished. It's like, you know, Williams, for example, won the title double in 1997, but that was predicated on Adrian Newey's work, but he had left by then. But that doesn't mean it's success without Adrian Newey. That, that's his sort of immediate legacy. So if Ferrari have a good year next year, this isn't like, you know, what's a bad analogy? George H.W. Bush on, on the deck of the aircraft carrier saying mission accomplished when they've done nothing. It won't be like that. So, you know, then expect a slump in 24, 25 if, if they get it wrong. The Braun GP 001, the best example of that in, in opposite yeah, effect. Exactly. Like that car was not... Yeah. Honda. <laughs> you know, exactly. It was the previous year that did it. Um, but let's link that, link Ferrari to uh, Mercedes and the differences they've had. So Ferrari, the struggles they've had with their drivers, the development this year, who to blame, what they say publicly. Let's talk about Mercedes, their drivers, the struggles they've had, the differences in language of Toto Wolf, Alex, and how you've spoken to him this year and all the Ferrari, uh, the Mercedes team this year. Just an unthinkably bad start. I mean, it could have been worse. Could have been worse, but a terrible start at the beginning of the year. How do you feel that they have tackled their problems this year? I mean, they have made tangible progress, like positive progress forward. They deserve huge credit for for what they did. It's not like that, you know, they recognised immediately. Not it, may, it was sort of covered up at the Barcelona test, not like covered up, but it was just it, it, what the, the scale of the problem wasn't revealed as how bad it was going to be until they got to Bahrain, right? Um, so they they obviously it, it shocked the team, you know. They 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 you know after all those years of winning, it's, it it can hurt all that more when you're suddenly off the pace. But they really galvanised and they they got it got it into contention. You know, it's not that W13 car didn't end the year as a Red Bull beater without Red Bull getting something wrong, like it did in Brazil, right? But Mercedes made progress. They made it faster. They had to take so long to understand what was causing the porpoising. Then they realised it was too stiff and it was bouncing in a different way to porpoising. Like, oh, there's another problem that's been revealed because they thought they'd fix that with the big upgrade they had in Spain. So that was another problem to solve. And then they finally got to the point where they could make an update to make it faster and that's what they did in Austin so they they methodically worked through it very difficult in a cost cap era you know it's not like I think I, if this was happening 20 years ago you'd have had a W13B by mid-season and yeah. it would have been totally different and maybe that's that's you know winning races from that point look at what McLaren did in, in 2009 um, so yeah a, a, a good season in terms of the progress that they made, but it's still a devastating season looking back on it, looking back in the history books. I mean, I know like we talked earlier on the podcast about thinking back to the start of the year. Remember the launch of that Mercedes? Do you remember it was in that massive storm? I can't remember what it was. Uh, the, everyone was watching that big jet TV oh, and yes, landing yeah. Heathrow and stuff like that. That was Let's the same day. Let's get this bad boy down. <laughs> exactly. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was the same day Mercedes launched their car and they did a shakedown in that storm and they were like, yeah, it's it's porpoising. That's, that's unexpected. But also we, we don't know how bad it is because these are some horrendous conditions yeah. we're having. But also as part of that launch, Lewis Hamilton basically came out swinging. Like he was just like fired up after 
after Abu Dhabi 2021. And he said, and I, I don't think we should ever forget these these words. He said, if you thought I was good last year, wait until what you're going to see this year. And yet, when the car, that the definitive car they were going to race was revealed in Bahrain, it chopped that momentum totally out from him. Like, he knew immediately, right, I basically can't win this championship. Like, there's, we're so far off the pace. The car is handling so badly. We've got to do so much work just to, just to get him happy in the car. Like, Mercedes is openly saying now, Russell was happier with the sort of basic package because he'd come from Williams where it was all over the pace and off the pace, you know, and, you know, making do. He knew how to handle that because that's all he was used to. Whereas Hamilton, it was suddenly like, oh, I've got, I've got to adjust to this thing that's not, I'm not happy with it. It doesn't feel good when I drive it. Like, I think there was a video recently where he drove the 21 car. Was it somewhere in America? Was it around the Austin Kota, time? I want to say. Yeah. yeah. And he was just like, this This car is just like, it's perfect. It's like, I, I, you could not ask for a better car. So he took a little while to adjust to that. But it did. It just meant we never got to see like the best Hamilton that we, he, don't get me wrong, he was still incredible this season. Like some of his drives, Paul Ricard, absolutely amazing. Um, you know, obviously Mexico, very good. Austin, all of that. Um, oh, uh, Zanville as well. That was the other one. That's that, I think that is Hamilton's lost win. I think without the safety car there, he probably could have beaten Verstappen. I think if you look at the pace he had on that one, on, on that one stopper. So difficult season for him. And it's just a shame we never got to see a, what a really fired up Hamilton could have done. But I still think it's there. I think that, if they're back on the pace next season, I think we get a 2021 rematch. And that's what I really want to happen. Throwing it back to the start of the podcast, you said, you know, what it's like when you're really in the zone working on drive ratings or whatever. So, you know, we, we look back on some of our scores at Hamilton, you know, Saudi Arabia, when he was, what he was, you know, didn't, didn't get out of the Q1 and think, oh, that's, you know, harsh and he was in a real rut then. But no, it's actually, as, as Alex, you know, says, as soon as he got in that car, I was like, right, not getting the eighth world title. So I think Mercedes have actually, they've used the exact word, we were giving him dangerous setups because he's got this vast amount of experience. We need to troubleshoot this car. So that means running it as high as it will go and then slamming it into the ground. So, you know, you know uh, what it can do. And, and they were writing off entire sessions, entire Grand Prix weekends trying to troubleshoot it. And yeah, they say they gave him dangerous settings, but that that's what we weren't probably appreciating at the time. So God, you know, because there was that narrative, you know, um, I think people were, were misquoting Jackie Stewart, saying, "Oh, Hamilton has to retire. Look at him; he's you know lost lost his edge, all of that." Whereas it, that was a that was a nonsense narrative. It was just he was he was making it for like the sacrifice he was being a team player using that experience he's talked about because I've been at that team for so long I can tell Shovlin yeah mate this isn't good enough you need to you know sort this out whatever whereas Russell's going to come in and obviously although he's been in engineering debriefs for some years now he's going to be a little bit more timid in that respect so um, I think I think you know what, what you said earlier it's so easy to be in the zone but you take a step back and it's actually something we've argued for uh, our, our annual top 50 drivers of the year award I know that some people who um, maybe care less about F1 have looked at that and gone well look at the difference in the championship and the points why is why is why is damn I don't want to give away the, where's where's one driver and where's where's the other but I think I think that's something something to appreciate now arguments within the Mercedes camp they happened like Hamilton if you like read his words he says I can argue with Shove because I've known him so long and I put that to Shove in an interview we did and they he, he smiled as if oh how am I gonna how am I gonna talk around this without revealing you know the sort of there were of course there were internal upsets of course they were everyone was that team was was devastated that it was suddenly off the pace but they fixed it they okay not like I said didn't turn it into a winner but they, you know, they they didn't they didn't get you know drawn into constant infighting, and that was their whole season whole season damned. They made a recovery, and that's how you get better. And again, it comes back to culture. And Toto's got it's a German phrase, so I don't know. I don't speak any German, so I don't know what it is. But it translates as um, you put the finger in the wound and sort of twist it. Like if, yeah, if something's bleeding, see if something's painful. But that's how you get better. That's how you sort of see like where things are. Where's the damage? Where are you weak? And that is the only way you sort of learn and improve. And I think that, again, it speaks to the strength of Mercedes culture as a team. We've spoken about that on numerous podcasts and articles and everything over the years. And I think we saw that in full swing this year that they said, right, we're in a real we're in a real pickle here at the beginning of the season. Let's dig our way out, out of this, fight our way through. And they did that. Alex, I think you summed that up perfectly. Like it was methodical the way they got through that by Austin said, right, this package will make the car quicker. And it did, and it won a race. And I think they they deserve a lot of credit for that. And it's exciting for next year that yeah, if that momentum can continue, if they can say, right, we know where we got the W13 so wrong, we can fix that for the W14 next year. A 2021 rematch, that would be really cool. Well, if I can 
put the metaphorical finger in Ferrari's wound and twist it some more. It's like you look at that, all the things that won the eight constructors titles are still there and Wolves talked about how he studied the fall of the Manchester United dynasty because he wants to know that his squad will bounce back over a winter over over two seasons and this isn't the start of like you know a, a Renault Enstone Malays or or, or or whatever you know a fall of one of the great super teams like Williams or McLaren and those ingredients are all there this is not the Newey leaving you know um Shovlin's still there uh, um Toto Wolf still having you haven't lost one of one of your one of your key drivers. So again, that stability. You look at Christian Horner now, who's been the only team principal in Red Bull racing history. And then again, you look at what Marinello are doing, and it's completely different and completely out of step to the only teams that have won titles since 2010. Yeah, what's Christian Horner? 2005. 2005. Yeah, day one. We haven't talked about engines almost at all this year, but the Honda. Sorry, Red Bull. Rebel Racing Powertrains powertrains. have hired aggressively from other teams. It doesn't. There was a a summer break Sky Sports special where Ted went to go visit Christian in his garden, vast gardens of Horner mansions. And he talked a lot about Red Bull Powertrains. I'm not sure Horner really wanted to go down there, sort of shifting from cheek to cheek. And he asked all the questions, but it doesn't seem a thing that they really want to put front and centre. But that seems to me, Luke, like it's been a big success of Red Bull, Honda, that relationship. McLaren couldn't make it work with the culture differences of Japan and the UK. Again, being very respectful to Japanese culture, I think McLaren got it wrong in terms of when they... When it really hit the fan, those two teams didn't work well to solve the problems together um, and the drivers that McLaren had at the time as well. But also, I think Red Bull have quietly, not within F1 circles, but generally been pretty aggressive at hiring the best people from their competitors, which is a great way of weakening your competitors, of course. Yeah, completely. And I think that on the engine front, obviously, that, I mean, that that is, that is a lot of that is down to Honda, that when Honda exited at the end of last year, that IP became... Uh, part of Red Bull powertrains and obviously the plan at one point was to link up with Porsche from 2026 that's now dead in the water so yeah it looks like this Honda technical partnership is going through until the end of 25 at least so I mean that's yeah I mean Honda they deserve all the credit for that Red Bull powertrains it's building at an impressive rate but that is very much focusing on 26 that's for the next rule cycle for the engines i think that yeah but the rebel honda partnership it's been successful and it continues to be so we're now in a engine freeze era so engine development is yeah as you say it's not been a talking point this year and it it probably won't be until 26 when the new rules come in but uh yeah i think they can be very pleased with what they've done and sort of apart from yeah the opening few races where we had the, the the fuel pump issues i think that aside from that Reliability wasn't really a big a big worry for Red Bull this year. Whereas, yeah, Ferrari, it was a different story. Alpine, it's like, oof, yeah. I think engine development is going to be a big talking point because of Ferrari. So that's the big that was the sort of the big engine news and probably the reason why Horner was shifty in that interview was because it was around the time of the the Porsche discussions and everything going wrong there so he probably was being very careful about what he said the big engine story this year was Ferrari and its reliability being so bad because they were you know they made they made you know made big steps big improvements you know it was awful the last couple of years the engine right got it back into contention but it was very very fragile Blew up in Spain, Costa Leclerc, an easy win. Matt, you were in Baku. You were there in Spain as well. We thought yeah. we thought at the beginning of the year that you sort I of cursed Leclerc. Bolts. <laughs> yeah. but, and it's also worth saying Alfa Romeo and Haas went pop all the time as well. Uh, and I was there when uh, the, the Red Bulls, the fuel pumps weren't working for Bahrain. And, oh, and, so it's and, all and, new guys, basically. Yeah, but then it, sort of went, it, sort of, then it went wrong and just too much Ferrari stuff went wrong. And that, uh, it didn't Can't work. take responsibility for all. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, um, and Austria as well, when science is uh, massively caught fire, since that run in, the, in that sort of just approaching the halfway point of the season, they had to turn the power down. And they've openly admitted that now. So it was not running at full whack. So there's got that's got to be developed because you're allowed to make changes under, what is it, force majeure for yeah, reliability, reliability reasons. Yeah. And we've seen that in the previous era. I'm pretty sure it was Renault in the, the start of the V8s that was off the pace. And through being able to make reliability upgrades, oh, suddenly we're all on massive parity. That, I suspect will happen. Formula One will be better for that. It's not controversial. I don't think it's like it's not like the engine settlement of 2019. It's just they they have to be allowed to make it more reliable. And if that makes it faster, so be it. Um, and I think the noises already coming out of Italy are that 
the ne- the engine for next year is is better and and quicker. The bomb apparently is what uh, Gunter Steiner was oh, which, which, which to I'm going to say is that does not sound reliable. No, exactly. at all. <laughs> <laughs> but so you can make changes on reliability. It does cost money to do that, and that leads us on to our final topic, which is uh, the cost cap how teams develop in this era. And of course, the big story this year, which was Red Bull exceeding the cost cap. My goodness me, I think Formula One could have done without it. I think it particularly harmed Formula One, though. I think it was a big deal at the time, like a lot of stuff, and a lot of people tried to make their competitors try to make it a really big deal. I'm not sure in the eyes of the general fan if it's been a a fatal blow to Red Bull. I think people are like, okay, I I think they've moved on. What do you think? I, I totally disagree. Yeah, I, th- I think F1, ne- F1 needed that to happen because otherwise it was just Verstappen having win after win after win after win and that would have turned things like, like a it, kept, it kept it interesting, exactly. Oh, okay. like, no, I just, obviously, we're looking at it yeah. from our you know news, yeah. like journalism, se- not sensationalism. We don't yeah. do sensationalism at Autosport. But you do, you need a story. You need something to, to keep people interested. And at that point in the season, Verstappen was steamrolling to the title. Sort of perks the panic up, you know. It's it's called the Piranha Club for a reason. (laughs) I get the point. It is it is negative, and the problem that it then leads to is this awful toxicity on social media, and you're getting team members abused, and you're getting drivers abused, and all of that. And that's that. Obviously, is just wrong. Full stop. But you know, look, Red Bull were were pushing the boundaries, and fair play to them for for being brave and doing that. They just got it wrong, right? And they've been punished accordingly. Were they? being you know deliberately it's really interesting I, I that's why i sort of appreciate it horner came out of red bull's corner really that long really punchy that long press conference yeah I, and again that as alex said like from a journalistic point of view that's it's fascinating and mexico was one of my favorite weekends because yeah it's f1 reporter news is my beat and it's like you really get your teeth stuck into that it's like oh, it's fantastic and it was an hour of him basically answering these questions and batting it away and he got asked at one point oh do you feel you owe an apology and he was like to who and he just like completely was like no like the rivals owe us an apology for how they've spoken about us and it was such a he yeah he came out swinging and he said look we're we're a team that we're aggressive in everything we do we will push the boundaries and what we do and that even came to to the cost cap and they got Ultimately, they got bitten by it. They they did get it wrong. They did exceed the budget cap. And their rivals, yeah, I think a lot of them, the reaction was, I think, yeah, the, the way that, like Tyson Wolf said, well, for us, it's not enough. But for Red Bull, it's, it's too much. So it was quite diplomatic. And I think, I think that ultimately... It worked out well for the FIA. I think they did sort of like draw a line in the sand and say, no, we're not going to let you off with a slap on the wrist. And I think that as the years go on, I think hopefully it gets even more severe because, yeah, this is year one, but I think you do need to make sure that these advantages aren't taken to like the absolute limit because otherwise, yeah, someone compared it to speed limits. And if you say, well, it's 30 miles an hour, but you've got 10%, everyone's going to drive at 32 miles an hour then. So it's... How uh, fast would you go, Matt? 32 minimum. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but it's been it's been fascinating. And I think that as a political season for Formula One, it's been a world away from the nastiness, I think, of last year and the sort of back and forth between Toto and Christian and Mercedes and Red Bull. But we've still had that sort of underlying needle between them, but in a very different environment, but with, yeah, every other team getting involved as well because the cost cap affects everybody. Yeah, I didn't like it because couple of the team bosses seem to know a great deal about what was happening behind the scenes. In terms of stuff leaking out, you Yeah, mean? and what I would have really enjoyed was seeing the FIA surprise everyone and come out with an instant decision and then a lot of clarity. And of course, then they prevaricated, then they were going to announce, then it got delayed from Thursday to the Monday. And I didn't like the whole affair. Uh, but hey, you, you guys, this is your job, so you but, write about the news. But there was also a lot of nonsense involved in that in terms of like, people just misunderstanding things because they were like, oh, the, uh, the, the, a Red Bull has agreed to accept that it um, breached the cost cap. That was literally just the process being followed. It wasn't like, oh, we're choosing right. our punishment or whatever. If you breach in the cost cap, you either accept it or you don't. You either, you either go, right, no, we haven't, and we're going to fight you legally. Rebel went, yep, we did. So now that was the next stage of the process. Whereas a lot of people like, Rebel have just accepted or they've come to a deal. That's not what happened. It was just the stages of the process. Yeah. But they have got their punishment, which is their aero restriction on development for 2023. Matt, how do you think that's going to impact their year next year? It's 25%. It's a, it's a big cut. And if you think, you know, compared to... Mercedes uh, coming through and whatever like the the question that 
this week's Autosport cover feature us brilliant cover feature if I may say so you know just wonderfully written and constructed is it can Mercedes make the step that F1 desperately needs because you know potentially with what's happening Ferrari if they have missed their best opportunity in a decade we need um, Mercedes to be there and it's only it twice in the modern era of Mercedes have they by this super times metric we look at fastest lap during the weekend only twice before in their history have they made a gap unequal to the gap they need to be to where Red Bull ended the season. So I think it's about 0.8 of a percent, which is where, you know, what they did in 2014, obviously, but they had a massive rules change and that's been and gone now. So they're basically focusing on one year they've done before, which is I think 2011 to 2012. Can they do that again? And so that 25% uh, cut for Red Bull is going to help you know, limit how far they get because Mercedes don't even don't just need to catch up to Red Bull. They need to then also match Red Bull's own gains over the winter if they're to be close. So having that twenty five percent cut is good. You know, obviously it's 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 not a surprising, but every time you have the rules reset, you think, oh, I'm more competitive. But no, because you know a team inevitably gets it right. That's what's happened with with Red Bull. We haven't had the random winners like we hope. You know, like a Gasly at Monza or or an Ocon at or at Hungary. So. To have, you know, a rules platform now that will offer some stability until 2026. And, you know, there's no favouritism here, but it is good for the spectacle. Like, I love it when Max Verstappen dominates because it's such an easy report to, well, comparatively <laughs> easy report to write. Yeah, like, great, early to bed, brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. But I appreciate totally for the spectacle that you want good teams. So having that 25% cut is good. And also, I think, Alex, you said around the time of the cost prep, like, you know, if it's one penny over... Red Bull need to be bin. I think it was something like 0.3% when you took out tax and inflation and carry the one and all of that stuff. Um, and actually, it's completely what I've, I've come come around to thinking because, you know, sliding doors moment. Sorry, I'm going off on a tangent here, but sliding doors moment. If the FIA hadn't delayed the engine announcements, then Red Bull would have announced that they were getting, you know, partnering with Porsche. So what so what would have happened there? That's my column I'm going to write. I've just decided. Oh, there you go. But anyway, where, where I was going with that is that the whole reason Red Bull had to be pinged if they were one penny over is because the sanctity of the cost cap is why in Belgium we had an announcement with Audi joining the championship and why Porsche is supposedly still interested in Honda might come in back in. And, you know, that's for the good of modern F1 and its health is to preserve that and go, you know, so that they can go, Audi can go to the Ingolstadt boardroom. We won't need a euro more mm. uh, than, than the cost cap. Look at you. Want to get it right. Like, yeah, just get it right. But we won't need a penny more and, and that's what it has to be. You know, that's why uh, 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 something we, we discussed on the, on the website and various columns and stuff is how Red Bull should be punished because you can't find them for for breaking the cost cap cut defeats that you can't, you know, it's it's just wrong. It's so draining to rediscover last year by by nicking them um, uh, uh, points out of the championship. So that's why the aero testing slash and preserving the cost cap has been actually, you know, it was 10 months after the event, eventually when it all got decided. But it was, you know, let, let's be honest, after a string of bad FIA decisions, that was a good one. The cost cap is dollars. I hate to point that out. Sorry, it is. No, you loved pointing yeah, that out. I did, yeah. You don't hate to point it <laughs> out. But Ingolstadt will go to the German boardroom and go, we Euros. They'll convert yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, very good. All right, just picking up like on your point about... Like our expenses, that's why we always lose a bit each time because it has to go to oh, dollars to pounds. Oh. Damn it. Um, but yeah, I think the point you made there, Matt, about um, you know, rules reset, everyone hopes it's going to be a lot of change often it is one team that runs away with it. So 2023 is a massive year for Formula One as an organisation because Ross Braun said, John Noble, when he and I did the interview with Ross in Abu Dhabi, put it to Ross, like you said in 2018, like basically like it's, it's, it's terrible that we've only had one non-top three, like McLaren, uh, sorry, um, Mercedes, Red Bull, Ferrari podium in one season. Well, that happened, didn't it? Nando Norris at Imola was the only non Red Bull, Ferrari, Mercedes podium. And he only got that because the Claire threw it off the road. So huge moment for Formula One next year. They need all the teams to be closer to Red Bull. They need Red Bull to be actually punished by having that wind tunnel time restricted and it pegging them back. And if that does create this sort of 2010-like season that followed 2009, then F1's in a really, really good place. Just being cynical, I just find, I think it's going to be hard. I still think Red Bull goes in as the, as the heavy favourite. Yeah. Well... That is a nice segue to our next podcast. 
the challenger teams, the midfield teams. Thank you for doing that. Um, helps me out. I'm a pro. Helps helps me out. Uh, I was aiming for about 45 minutes for this first part, and I'm, we're almost at an hour. So that is a major breach of the rules uh, for me. Yeah, that's a major overspend, Martin. That's a major overspend. Your Reduce. punishment is to buy us lunch. I can <laughs> he do said that. he was going to do that anyway. Yeah, I can do that. I can do that. Two lunches. Well, <laughs> <laughs> is catering uh, included? Hang on a minute. Hey. <laughs> So, thank you very much for listening to our first part of our season review. Next time, we'll talk uh, McLaren versus Alpine, the rest of the pack, and our experts' favourite moments or races of the season. And we'll have a look forward to 2023 as well. Thank you for listening. We'll see you on the next one. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.